the Westminster Larger Catechism. Now, in this theological tradition that goes back, you know, this was written in the 1640s, but it's from an older tradition that goes back at least to the 1500s, and really, we believe, all the way back to the Apostles. But the Larger Catechism was written as the eight outline, the statement of faith for the English-speaking peoples of the world hundreds of years ago. This still, church still uses it. Uh, a lot of churches still use it. So it's got statements about things like what the place of the law is. And we've been talking about that lately. There is no greater area of disagreement that I tend to have with other ministers and other churches than this content right here. We're usually not fighting about the gospel. Sometimes, frankly, it is. There are entire denominations that have a threatening stance toward the gospel because they try to combine their own good works or their own intellect with the grace and mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. But other than that, it's the law. This is the battle of our day. It wasn't the battle of every generation. In previous generations, often they were arguing about how to interpret the law. They all believed that the law was the basis for Christian behavior, but they had differences of interpretation. Now it's whether or not we should be using this stuff at all. So the difficult conversation that I get into with guys uh, tends to be over statements like these. Now, in this denomination, it should not be controversial. Really, in cons all of the conservative churches of the different mainline denominations, conservative Lutheranism, conservative Anglicanism, conservative Episcopalianism, conservative Presbyterianism, conservative Baptist theology, and so on, this should not be controversial subject matter. So I want you to understand that when you start to see an approach and you're watching someone on TV or you're listening to a sermon and they start to say things that feel intuitively untrue about the nature of the law in relation to the world of the gospel, this is what they're arguing against. Like, I'm sure you guys have all seen, like, uh, gay preachers on TV and stuff because it's pretty common now, right? And entire churches and movements that are crumbling and crunching and separating, you know, recently un Unfortunately, through the Methodist Church, many of those churches have had to break away from the United Methodist Church denomination over their compromise over this issue. That people just don't want to use the Bible as the basis for ethics. They want to keep the Bible, but not the rules. And then it becomes a religion of mere human imagination. No longer a connection and communication with God. So these aren't Bible verses. This is the way that all the stuff in the 1,000 to 1,200, depending on how big your print is, the 1,200 pages of the Bible, what their judgment was in those days that's been corroborated through history one generation after the other about how we're supposed to use the law of God. So we're just going to look through these and read them just so you can see what their judgment was. Now, I'm not saying that it has to be your judgment, but it's always good to see what the time-tested rule is. So, having seen what the scriptures principally teach us concerning God, it follows to consider what they require as man. What is the duty that God requires of man? The duty that God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Totally obvious, right? It gets more complicated, but really you have to have that first. You know, I've got this church down the street from us, and, you know, they've got a little Martin Luther outside the church, and he's in a habit. He's very cute, but he's always holding up some kind of blasphemous sign, which really makes me upset. 
because I know Martin Luther. If Martin Luther rocked in right now, we could have a great conversation. Because I've read his stuff, and I know his character, and I know his temperament. And he would not have held up a flashing uh, uh, blue, purple, and yellow sign that says love versus love is love. That's not him at all, right? Love is a very specific thing in the Bible. It has very specific terms and definitions. It is true that there are very few things in the Bible, other than the gospel, that Jesus was more concerned about than love. And especially that you love God and that you love your neighbor as yourself. But within love, there are terms. There are, definite, there are things that are not love, and you can call it love all you want, but it's not. So his revealed will, what did his will reveal? Did it reveal that you have to love each other? It absolutely did. But now, what is that? What does that look like? What is its practice? Number 92, what did God first reveal unto man as the rule of his obedience? The rule of obedience revealed in Adam in the state of his innocence, so before the fall, and to all mankind in him, Besides a special command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the moral law. In other words, the only rule he gave to Adam before the fall was not just to eat some fruit. All the other stuff. Well, how could he love his neighbor as himself? He was alone with a bunch of animals, right? But did Adam, as a rational thinking human being, was there also all of the ideas of the Ten Commandments bound into the fabric of his being? as the only thing created in the image and likeness of God. I want you to think about that creative event, where first he creates light, then he creates the planets, he creates the oceans and the rivers, then he creates life, right? And he starts and he, he creates the things in the heavens and he creates the things on the earth and he creates the things in the seas, he creates the plants and all of those, he creates all of the orchestration of the heavens and at last he creates a man as a special thing created in his own image and likeness and what's the image and likeness it's not how he looks it's how he thinks and it's what's going on in his heart it's that he can know the difference between good and evil then he creates eve also created in the image and likeness of god so even in the garden let's just you know you have to make it silly to make the point right adam was not allowed to murder eve he was not allowed to hate her in his heart, even before the fall, right? They did have ethical relationships. They did understand things before the fall. So number 93 there. What is the moral law? In other words, if there's a moral law, what is it? The moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto. In the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness to which he oweth to God and man. Promising life upon the fulfilling and death upon the breach of it. Everything is contractual. I know there was this big movement in the church over the last 10 or 20 years to say, well, marriage is a covenant, it's not a contract. In the Bible, there's no difference between a covenant and a contract. I mean, I understand what they're trying to get to there, and I like it, right? It's like more than a contract, right? But in the Bible, everything's a contract. And in the beginning, God made a contract with Adam and Eve. He said, if you don't eat this fruit, you'll live. If you eat this fruit, you'll die. I'll bless you if you obey, and I won't bless you if you don't obey. Instead, I'll curse you. 
Their covenantal relationship with God was different than yours. You came into the world having already broken the contract. There was no way for you to fix it, right? Your covenant is a covenant of grace. Theirs is a covenant of law. Perfectly keep the law in thought, word, and deed, and you will live, break the law, and you'll die. And that's it. There's no way to fix that. Number 94, is there any use of the moral law to man since the fall? So that's the interesting question. We're fallen. What do we have to do with the law? Haven't we been saved and freed from the law? And here's where things get a little bit hinky. You'll have people that are preaching, look, we're under grace. We're not under law. It doesn't matter what the law says. The law is not for me. The law is for them. It doesn't matter what I do. The Apostle Paul was actually accused in Romans chapter 2 and 3 of preaching this kind of thing. He said, they say that I'm preaching that we should go on and continue to sin, that grace may abound even more. And then he refutes that as not being what he's saying at all. You can be saved by grace and not by law. And at the same time, the law still stays exactly what it is. What if I were to tell you this? The laws of God are not arbitrary constructs of his mind. The laws of God are not constructs of society where human societies get together and create things like male and female. Male and female themselves are definitely expressions of biology that are completely beyond your social ability to redefine those, right? That's why the birds do it, the bees do it, the flowers and the trees do it, everything male and female, everything. You know, I don't care how many things you do, if you've got only Male dogs, you will have no puppies. Right? You got only female cats, you're getting no kittens. Well, you know, uh, I grew up on a ranch in Dallas, but, you know, that's not a farm. So I did learn after moving out here that chickens can have eggs even if there's no rooster. You can have like 10 chickens and they're all laying. That's like free eggs without the problem of having a rooster. Because roosters, I already knew, are a problem. Uh, but here's the thing. But you ain't getting no chicks. You're just getting eggs. Right? Not a single one of them will ever hatch. And has never hatched in human history. Because God's plan from the beginning was male and female. And the things that we call gender are secondary and subsidiary expressions of those biological necessities that exist whether we like them or not, right? It can't change into another thing. We can't change it. Society can't change it. The Supreme Court of the United States can't change it. God created it. It's woven into the fabric of our being. It's in your DNA from the moment of your conception. When the zygote first split into two cells of your being, both those cells were either male or female. And it's still the same right now. It's not changeable. It's not negotiable. So here, when it says this, since the fall, although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law. Now this is something that we remember and we focus on on this church all the time. Look, you cannot advance in righteousness through the law to be good enough that God will love you because you're good. You cannot attain through the moral law that which God has reserved to grace. Yet there is great use thereof as well as common to all men 
as peculiar either to the unregenerate or the regenerate. Now, this is just a fancy way of saying this. Look, the laws of God, therefore, not just y'all, but for all y'all. <laughs> Thank you, Luann, for that. <laughs> They're not just for Christians. Do you really think that God is concerned about Christians and the way they marry and that they don't murder each other and they're not bad to each other? But non-Christians, he's not concerned about that? And think about the opposite. Only the law is for only for non-Christians, but we're under grace for it's not for us. Neither one of those works. So what it's saying is regenerate, unregenerate, Christian, non-Christian, the laws of God are for all equally because you're created in the image of God and so are they. We're all human. We're all under the same law, not a different law for each. So then in number 95, of what use is the moral law to all men? The moral law is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God. And that's what we mean when we say the laws of God are not transient and they're not arbitrary and they're not a construct. What do I mean by that? Here's the thing. The laws of God, like God, are eternal and unchangeable. He cannot change them for you. Before you were even created, before God even said, let there be light, he already hated evil and loved what is good. It's from his own heart, his own nature. If you want to understand God, the two things you have to understand to understand what God is really like, especially if you have a hard time understanding him, because frankly, he's hard, right? Uh, read the law and read the gospel. When you understand grace and mercy and love, you understand what God is really like in his heart. And so he wrote the Bible and sent Christ into the world to explain these things to you so you could see and touch and feel him so you would understand what he's like. But also, read his law. What does God actually hate? He hates lying. He hates murder. He hates adultery. He hates false witness. These are the things that he hates. You read his law, you find out what he hates so you can find out what he loves. The revelations of God are mainly in his gospel and in his law. So, and according to their duty, binding them to walk accordingly. To convince them of their disability to keep it. None of you can keep the law. I'm not saying that. You're mostly aren't even, so you don't even seem to be trying half the time. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but of course, you know. We're fallen creatures. We can't perfectly keep the law of God and thought, word, and deed. Christ did that for us. In their hearts and lives and sinful pollution, to humble them in their sense of sin and misery and thereby to help them to a clearer sight of the need they have in Christ and the perfection of his obedience. So one thing that the law is good for all men is to show you, you need Jesus. You're not good enough. You can't do it. Their entire theologies, their whole thing is to build you up and say, now you're good enough. Now you're strong enough. If you have enough faith, you can move mountains. You can heal everything. You can be rich. You can be famous. You can be powerful. And it's all a lie. That's not what the gospel or the law do for you. The law shows you your inability to be perfect enough for God. Question 96. What particular use is there of the moral law to unregenerate men? In other words, if somebody's... Here's the way we talk about it in the church, right? You go outside the church, they don't know what this means. Did you get saved? They don't know what that means. I said, I, I don't think so. I wasn't in any danger today, right? But we talk about folks who's getting saved, and they mean by that somebody who ain't saved. The moral laws of use to unregenerate men to awaken their conscience to flee from the wrath to come and to drive them to Christ or inexcusable and under the curse thereof. <clears throat> 
If you have somebody that you've been witnessing to, and you feel like you have told them the law because you have a problem with their morality, and that has caused friction between you and them, believe me, Scripture teaches you are doing the right thing. Now, whether or not you're doing it in the right time, at the right place, in the right way, under the right conditions, those are all complications that have to do with your wisdom, right? But telling them the law to drive them to the gospel is an ongoing biblical method that continues to this day. People recognizing that they've sinned before a holy and righteous God and so they need Jesus, that's how we come, folks. That's the method. That's not wrong. People that tell you that's a wrong evangelism thing usually don't make any converts. So, 97, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Now, that's you guys. People that regenerate to generate, you know what rebirth is. You've been brought back to life. You have spiritual life. You were spiritually dead. Now you're spiritually alive. You've been regenerated. Kind of famously in this theology, regeneration precedes faith. If God hadn't brought you to spiritual life, you wouldn't be able to believe. So you're already born again. You will be born again physically on the last day, but you've been born again spiritually already. So what is the use of the law of God to you? Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works. You're not under the covenant of works the way Adam and Eve were. So as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned. Now this is what we'd be very careful with because we don't want you to misunderstand. You're free from the law. You can't be justified by it. Neither can you be condemned by it on the last day. Your freedom is an absolutely visceral and real freedom from the condemnation of the law before God. Now, it doesn't mean that God is forgetful. It doesn't mean that he doesn't know what you do and what you don't do. But whereas before, your context of the law was punishment and death, in Christ, your context of the law is that he will teach you like a loving father to obey it so that you become the kind of a person, having the kind of a character that is the kind of a person that Jesus Christ was. Now, uh, so some people get into, God could never punish a Christian for anything. That's why you get fruity things like people saying David wasn't a Christian and Abraham wasn't a Christian. You get all these fathers of the faith, these people in the Bible, and you'll have Bible teachers say they're not Christians because they fell into things and God punished them and God would never punish someone that's in Christ. No, he absolutely would, but not for their destruction or to drive them to utter despair, but for their correction and their learning and growth in grace. Besides, the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to them to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their place, their stead. And for their good, and thereby to provoke in them more and more thankfulness, and to express the same in their greater care, to conform themselves thereto as the rule of their obedience. For the regenerate, not for the unregenerate. In other words, if you want to know how to please God, read his law. And obey it. Not because it will justify you, and not because you'll be condemned without it, but because you had guilt, you were given grace, and now you live a life of gratitude. So this is just to answer this question. Do you still have to obey the law, even when you're not burdened by it as a death sentence? Yeah. Why? Because you're God's children, and you're made in his image and likeness, and that is what he's 
like. So, you know, Jesus, what would Jesus do? He perfectly kept the law in thought, word, and deed. If you want to do what Jesus would do, you can do that same thing. Okay, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. And what we're reading today is from verse 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 13 from verse 8. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed at all. Hebrews chapter 13 from verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the context for where this famous bumper sticker verse comes up. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, because it's a good thing that the heart be established with grace, and not meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Uh, so in being carried away by strange doctrines, here are some of the strange doctrines you have to not be carried away with. You have to not think that you'll be justified before God on the basis of your works or that you've been good enough to do that. Hey, I know lots of Catholic folks. I know some of them I've been having this conversation with for 35, 40 years. Most of them don't believe that they're saved by their good works. They believe they're saved by grace. In other words, they've been Protestantized and Bibleized to the place where even though the church holds to that, the average Catholic does not. And that is where we have hope for their grace and salvation. But at the same time, the official doctrine of the church is you're justified by grace and faith and your good works. And your good works will be the measurement that will make sure that you're saved on the last day. That's not the doctrine of Scripture. There's a similar movement within the Mormons. They also have a doctrine of justification by good works, not by grace alone, through faith. The gospel is a salvation by grace alone, through faith. But also there are other things out there that are diverse doctrines that come and go in the church. One is called the Word of Faith movement or the Faith movement. How many of you have heard of this? It's very famous. It's bigger than Orthodox, Biblical, Historic Christianity in the United States. Most of the preachers you see late on TV, you know, if you're up at 3 in the morning and you're watching a preacher, it's probably one of these preachers. And what they preach is well-being, fame, fortune, power, and health in this life as a consequence of the gospel. That if you can gather up enough faith and believe hard enough, because it's all in you, the power of your faith will manifest it for you. How many of you have watched the great prophet and witness Oprah Winfrey on television? <laughs> and she always has these guys on here. This is her religion. It's the manifestation of power. And she has these guys on there with best-selling books. Now, power, control. And if you can have gather up enough power and steam in yourself to manifest your thoughts, you can bring into being the things that you really want. Because that's the power of the Holy Spirit. That is not any spirit that's of God. So I just want to read you a little something. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 4. Excuse me, it's 2 Corinthians. There's two of them. In your pew Bible, it's page 1227. Chapter 4 from verse 7. Hey, it's a real thing that churches tend to be packed in by people that are believing not the gospel, but something that's nice to hear. I'm going to read you why people don't become Christians. 
Okay? Don't use this for your evangelism. I'm going to tell you what God really says about how great these bodies are and how you can manifest the power of your faith. And God never wills that anyone be sick or anyone be poor or that anyone ever suffer. And if they do, it's a problem with their faith. You just need more faith, sister. You just need more faith, brother. The power of your faith will heal you. Uh, that's not faith. Look at the way the Apostle Paul talks about our time in this body and see if you can reconcile it with some kind of a manifestation of your internal power to bring about things in the real world. But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel and salvation, in jars of clay. Jars of clay is not a compliment. Jars of clay are not pretty. Jars of clay are easily broken and leaky. They're not fancy. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're never crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We might be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. Always caring about the body of death of Jesus Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is in you. He's not saying exactly great and splendid and happy things about the time between your birth and your death, even if you are within the power of the gospel. Here he starts to explain it in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, so these verses are used to teach this faith doctrine, but look at what it actually says. According to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is for all your sake, so that as grace extends, to more and more people, it may be increasing in thanksgiving to the glory of God. So here's his point. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I can promise you as a Christian, power. And if your heart is set on Christ alone, I can promise you happiness in this life no matter what you go through. But I can't promise you the contents of happiness. In other words, that everything around you will be a happy situation or condition. That's a different thing. If your heart is fixed on Jesus Christ and his cross, he will take you through even the worst storms of this life. But I cannot promise you no storms. That's a different kind of promise. I can promise you that if your body falls apart and waxes away even unto the power of death, that he will raise you from the dead on the last day. But I cannot void death for you. I can promise you that any sickness can be healed and probably will be healed, but might not be healed. And at the same time, he will give you the power to live through it. But I can't promise you no sickness because the Apostle Paul here just said our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, this life that you're living through, is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So here's his advice in regard to these things. Even you that have faith, and he's implying here, you that have a powerful faith, but might not be understanding what you're going through. 
As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here's what he's saying to you. And in regard to these diverse doctrines and these powerful things that sweep through the churches, I don't want you to be caught or snared by it. All of the power of faith that you can muster is equal to nothing. All right? If not for the Lord Jesus Christ and the regenerating power of his spirit that brought you to faith and life, you would have no life. And it's he that fills you with the power to believe in him day by day and to focus upon him as the center of your salvation. But all this other stuff, it's all going to fall away. Even the elements on the last day will be consumed by flame and everything that you built in this life will not last far past it. Have you ever seen a monument to one of the great dead men? Every once in a while we like to carve people's heads, right? We put them on a mountain so they'll last forever. I promise you they will not last forever. Have you ever walked through a graveyard and you see all these names of people all around you? But they were forgotten generations ago. Somebody carved their name in stone to try to preserve them forever. But it will not last forever. But your life in Jesus Christ, that is what is of eternal and unchanging value. And this will last forever. 